We're going to continue our series of messages today on passionately devoted, pursuing Jesus in 2022. And we've talked about the calling of discipleship on our lives. We talked about the terms and conditions of it. Last week, we talked about the excuses that sometimes we give. And this week, it's a little bit of an audible from what was originally going to be preached today. But the Lord just kind of laid this on me and doing some research and looking through really while I was doing our year through the Bible reading. And so some of us in the room are joining together to read through the Bible in a year, maybe using different plans, but there's a plan where we read a little bit of Genesis right now. We read a little bit of the Old Testament, a little bit of the New Testament, a Psalm and a Proverb every day. And by the end of the year, you have read the entire Bible through. And I was reading through the book of Genesis again, and it always strikes me in the book of Genesis how terrible some of the people are in the book of Genesis. I mean, there are some weird stuff and evil stuff that happens from the patriarchs. We talk about that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And sometimes you read that, and no disrespect, men, but you're like, we probably could find some better representatives of them. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen in there that you're like, um, I was part of what I do, I was listening on audiobook. I listen on audiobook. I've got it. I like that. I was working in the kitchen and ask Alexa to give me, you know, can you read my reading for the day from Audible? And it started and the kids were running around and like Ava was in there and I was like, okay, I got to stop this because there's some stuff that I don't want the questions about that's happening right now in Genesis. And one of the stories that I was fascinated with that I think speaks to us happens in Genesis chapter 19. I want to speak about it for a couple of reasons, and I believe this. First of all, it talks about something that we as individuals and as church need to understand. But also today, as we're thinking about the future, we're looking at our youth group, we're thinking about what God is going to do and building it and growing it. I believe that there's some guidance for us in this passage about how we have a responsibility to the youth in our church. That we have to take seriously. No matter what age you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter if you understand anything of the culture in which they live or not, we have a responsibility to them. And this passage shows how that responsibility played out in the life of Abraham. It talks about our responsibility to pray for our students, for each other, for our community, for our families, for our co-workers. It's something our church needs to hear. It's the story of Abraham and his young nephew, Lot. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Abraham is considered the smartest man in the Bible because he knew a lot. I don't usually do those, but it was there, all right? It was there. I don't do the preacher jokes, but it was there. I'm getting more comfortable in dad jokes as I get older. And so in chapter 19, I want to catch up on the story because it is about Abraham and his nephew, Lot. It's an interesting thing because, I don't know if you remember this or not, when Abraham is called to go, he is called to leave everything behind. You remember that in Genesis chapter 12, Abram, go, leave, I'm going to tell you where y'all go. You just get on the road and go and don't take anything with you. And he goes, okay, okay, I'll do that, Lord. And then he follows, but he takes a long lot. Y'all remember that? He wasn't supposed to. He wasn't supposed to take anybody, but he took a lot and it ended up being a problem for him. They've been having problems because the land that they're trying to settle in is too small for them to coexist. It's kind of like some of your houses during quarantine. It shrunk on them. And the 
their shepherds were fighting with each other. They were going about wells and about land and about where they are. The best watering holes, the best pastures. They're eating all the grass in the area. They don't have enough room. And eventually, Abram and Lot are like, we got to do something about this. We've lived in the same room for too long. It's time to split up. And so Abraham took Lot up on a high mountain overlook and said, Lot, God has promised to give our family all this land. You go one way, I'll go the other, and I'm going to let you choose. Now, all the land was good. In fact, they said the land to the east that he showed him was comparable to the Garden of Eden itself, is what Genesis 13.10 says. The pastures were green and fertile. There were lots of watering places and shade. The problem was that the land on the east stretched out two, towards two cities. You may know what those two cities were. Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, they've become synonymous with evil in our day, but they were synonymous with evil in that day, too. That one concerning Delot, though. He liked the vibe of the cities. He really liked the green pastures and the better land. Money and culture and activities he wanted to be a part of. So he chose the land toward Sodom. It tells us that in Genesis 13. It says this, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. And then he gives us this little aside, this little note about Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Sinning immensely, greatly, more than we can even describe. And shockingly, this turned out to be a bad choice. Like, well, how bad of a choice did it turn out to be? Well, shortly after he got there, raiders from Sodom came and stole all his stuff and took him and his family captive. And Abraham, mounting a Liam Neeson kind of rescue vigilante posse, goes to rescue them. Gets them out. And you would have thought, well, Lot learned his lesson. He's going to move farther away. But Lot loved Sodom so much, he moved back there, pitching his tents even closer. In fact, if you're in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, where we come to in this story, it says, the two angels, and we'll get to what they're doing there in just a moment, entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. Sitting in the gateway of the city in the Old Testament is the way to say that he had become a leader of the city. The leaders of the city would sit at the gateway. I pastored in Ripley that sometimes you could find spots in town where the leaders would gather for coffee. This is kind of that kind of thing. He's sitting with the leaders of the city. Not only is Lot living near the city, he is a leader in Sodom. In fact, in verse 7, it says this, I beg you, my brothers. The idea he says is, you're my brothers, I care about you. Please, there's things that are about to happen. By the way, it makes you wonder what kind of compromises Lot had to make to end up being a leader of one of the most villainous, evil cities to be recorded in history. Now, to be fair, it doesn't seem from Scripture that Lot went with the worst wickedness in Sodom. In fact, it seems he kept most of his morals, but it's also clear he had to make some compromises. If you read 19 in detail, you'll see that. We're going to kind of skim over it today. 
But perhaps most tragically is what we see is that Sodom apparently had more influence on Lot than Lot had on Sodom. You see, in chapter 18, it tells us this story about Abraham and God having a conversation because God says he's going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham's like, God, would you really do that? What if there are righteous people there? He says, I'll tell you what, God, if you find, and then God begins a negotiation with Abraham, right? Really the other way around. Abraham is negotiating with God. He says, if you find 50 righteous people in the whole city, would you destroy? And God says, I won't destroy if I'm 50. Well, Abraham knows, well, that's not the case. So he starts going down. Suppose we get to 20. What about, what about 20? What about, what about 10? What about? And then in verse 18, in chapter 18, verse 28, he says, Would you destroy the whole city for a lack of five righteous people? God says, If you can find them, I won't destroy it on account of those that you've mentioned. Now, here's what's interesting. The number they settle on is 10, by the way. You get to 10 righteous, and God says, if you find 10 righteous, I won't destroy it. We know from Scripture that you've got Lot and his wife and two daughters. So that's four. But they don't seem to have persuaded anybody else in the city. The negotiation ends, and God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know that they are destroyed. But in response to Abraham's prayer for Lot, God sends angels to warn him. The whole negotiation would be about preserving Lot. So in chapter 19, verse 15, it says, At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Take your wife, take your daughters, you'll be swept away into the city. Look what happens at the beginning of verse 16. But he hesitated. Even when he's heard that everyone is about to be destroyed with fire from heaven by the angels of God, that he has no doubt are the angels of God, this is a message of God, he knows the city is about to be destroyed, he hears it's going to be destroyed, and yet it says he hesitated. He thinks about not leaving. He even says, because of the Lord's compassion for him, because of the Lord's compassion for Lot, he, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. Literally, he had to be taken away. I mean, if you look, I think the next slide, Josh, highlights a couple of these words. He literally had to be drug out of the city. He had to be taken by them. As they're leaving, the angels warn Lot, don't look back. Don't look at what God's about to do. But we know the story, right? Lot's wife can't help it. She turns around, raptured with the city, wants to see what happens, so in love with it. She couldn't keep her eyes off it, and she immediately is turned into a pillar of salt. And in the end, Lot is saved by the skin of his teeth, but he loses everything, including his wife. You say, all right, Pastor, what does that have to do with us and our youth and all that has to do with it? 
There are four lessons I want us to see, and we're going to go through these quickly today, but I want us to see these from the life of Lot and Abraham and what's happening here. And the first is, we must be on guard or watch out for the progression of sins in our lives. I don't think Sodom and Gomorrah intended to become Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't think Lot ever intended when he chose the land near Sodom to be taken out by hand by angels from God to save him from the destruction of the city. He never intended to be a part of that. He probably was intrigued by it, thought about it, but he was brought into a little bit more. He didn't intend to be part of the judgment for sure, and he never imagined his wife would end as she did. But many of us, like Lot, are so attracted to the world that we make our home as close as we possibly can. And if we're honest with ourselves, we end up identifying as much with the world around us as we do with the people of God and the plans that he has. Whom do we think of most instinctively as my brothers? Who do we feel the closest kinship with? The lesson of Lot's life is that you have to make up your mind about with whom you're going to associate yourself with most closely and how that's going to impact your life. Pastor J.D. Greer has said again and again that the most miserable person in the world is the half-committed Christian who is just enough in the world to be miserable in God and just enough into God that they are miserable in the world. The worst thing to do is to try to straddle two opinions. You can't keep trying to walk along with your feet in both worlds. One of the things in life that I'm terrible at, really bad at, and not that this is a skill I have to have very often is, is getting onto a boat. Now some of you, it's just second nature, you just get onto a boat. But when I put my foot on the boat, and I got one foot on the boat and one foot on the solid ground, I seem to like the foot on the solid ground. And I don't commit to the other foot going to the boat. And then I begin to get stretched out. And the older I get, the less stretched out I can become. Right? There's a split second you got to make up your mind. You getting in the boat or are you going to stay on the shore? On the dock? Or to quote an old Chinese proverb I read. It was on the internet, so it's true, you know. He who tries to walk down both sides of the road will split his pants. You can't have two opinions. You can't try to be committed in two places. Now, the biblical version of that is 1 John 2.15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For any person that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not just about what we do. It's about our hearts. You think about the passage of Scripture where Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes. He's teaching through all those things. And he basically says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The things that you treasure, your heart will follow. And Lot was trying to get as close as he could to Sodom without being in Sodom. And yet Sodom got in him. There's a progression. It doesn't happen immediately. It just kind of starts small and then grows bigger. You never see it coming. You look at your life five years down the road and I would have never imagined that I would end up here. I thought it was just a small thing. Most Christians don't intend to end up like Lot does in this passage, but my guess is Lot didn't either. God calls us to be in the world, but not to make our home there. We're to make an impact on the world. There's a difference in living in the world and making your 
life there. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Pastor Greg O'Shale says that you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. He says if you will become in your life the average of your five closest friends. But wait a minute, Pastor. Aren't we supposed to have non-Christian friends? Aren't we supposed to be reaching out to them? Absolutely. The question becomes, what is the influence and access that people have to your life? You have to decide where you want to be because if we're not careful, the progress of sin will continue. Second thing we learn from this passage of Scripture is we must realize that judgment is coming. For years, God had warned Sodom and Gomorrah about coming judgment. Everyone brushed it off as unreal and went back to partying. But God makes no empty promises. And so one day it came. God tells us that he is slow in executing judgment to give people space to repent. But don't confuse his slowness with his absence. For all of us in this room, judgment is coming. We're going to spend eternity in one of two places. Jesus talked more about hell than he ever talked about heaven. And he wants us to understand that as a very real thing. There will also be a judgment for those that are followers of Christ. I think it's interesting to think about how Lot got out literally by the skin of his teeth as fire consumed. There's a picture of that even in the New Testament when it says, and some will make it as if through fire. I don't know exactly what that is, but I know that one day we will face our Savior and judgment will happen. First of all, whether or not we have accepted our Savior, whether or not we have bowed to Jesus, whether or not we have been saved. And those that have not will spend eternity separated from Him and those that have will spend eternity with Him. And we must live our lives as if that is a reality. Here's the third thing we see from this passage, and this is vitally important. We must understand that we don't drift into godliness. Lot didn't make a deliberate choice to make Sodom his home. He just kind of drifted there. To be honest with you, living for Jesus, living the life that God has called us to in this world will always feel like an uphill battle because you are going against the current and everything in the world will be pulling you in another direction. If you're not careful, if you're not intentional, if we're not intentional as a church, if you're not intentional as individuals about what it means to follow Christ, we will drift away from him. I know you've been, those of you that have been to the ocean, you've stood in the ocean and you've kind of just out playing in the waves and you have that focal point of where the, where the, your chairs are, where the umbrella is, where your stuff is laid. You go out there and you jump the waves, you play in the waves, you look at the waves, and you look up and at some point you realize that either you've gotten way farther out to sea than you intended or you're way far down the beach from where you wanted to be. You're like, how did that happen? I didn't move. No, but the current of the ocean moved you. We live in a world and a culture that will move us if we're not intentional about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. We have to swim against the stream. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of Matthew, it is broad, it's easy to go with everyone. 
The gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. There are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. Drifting is not actively seeking to know God and His Word. It's not that you reject the Bible. It's not that you reject church. It's just you give all of your time to other endeavors. Snapchat and TikTok and Instagram reels and Netflix binging and and important things that may not be the most important thing. Family outings and sports and video games. None of which help in your spiritual growth. You don't join in a daily quiet time. You're not involved in small groups. You're not really studying the Bible at all. And before you know it, you look up and the place where you should be is miles down the beach. Broad is the gate that leads to destruction. And let me say this to us as a church, but specifically to parents in here today. Parents, your families will not drift into godliness. It will not happen without intentional movement on your part. My prayer for our youth group is that they would become a group that together goes against the current that stands firm against what the culture is trying to do, that speaks truth about who Jesus Christ is, that shares the gospel with their friends, and that strengthens one another in their walk. And to be honest with you, if that's what we want for our students, then that's what we as parents ought to be living out in our own lives, intentionally committed to doing that for ourselves and our families. Realizing that one day judgment is coming and the world is not going to fall into godliness. They need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. The reality is that many of us in this room have people that we see, that we interact with on a daily basis, that do not yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if we're not careful, we're going to waste this life when we should have told them about the most important thing. And we're going to get to eternity and they're not going to be there. What are you going to say in that moment? Sorry. I didn't want people to think weird of me. I knew I was a little different. I didn't want everybody to know it. Here's the last thing we see in this passage and then we're done. And this is where we really focus as a church in this message for us, for our youth in particular. We must be active intercessors. I mentioned that when it was time for Lot to flee Sodom, when judgment was just moments away, Lot hesitated. And then in verse 16, you remember that they called and the, 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 it says the angels, the men, literally grabbed his hand and pulled him out of the city and his family. Now here's my question for you. Why did God have the angels do that for Lot? I mean, by this point, Lot seems to want to stay in Godom, in Sodom. In fact, you could argue that it's worse because he knew better and he's been warned continuously about the wickedness of Sodom and he ignores it. So in a way, he is as guilty or more guilty than everyone else that is there because he knows better and he still wants to stay. So why did the angels grab his hands and drag him? Well, that's where chapter 19, verse 29 gives us the answer. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham 
and brought Lot out of the middle of the people where he had demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Scripture tells us there's one reason that Lot was saved, and that's because Abraham had prayed for him. Lot didn't deserve rescue, but somewhere back there was a man who loved him and his family, probably felt responsible for bringing him along, giving him that choice. And Abraham prayed that God would save Lot. And for Abraham's sake, God did. And when Lot hesitated, the angels pulled even harder because Abraham prayed. If Abraham hadn't, it seemed Lot would have perished along with Sodom. Could we get a clearer picture of the power of prayer? Lot was doomed, destined to be destroyed. And yet, because Abraham prayed, the angels went and grabbed him and brought him. Who are you praying for today to be saved from destruction? Who are you praying for to be saved? Who are you praying for to continue to stand firm in their faith? Church, one of the things that every one of us in this room needs to be praying for is the youth of our church, those that God has entrusted to us and those that God will entrust to us, and praying that God will allow them to stand firm in who they are. We need to be the intercessors, the Abrahams to them. Many of us in this room cannot and will not be able to understand the craziness of the world in which we live and the amount of forces that are pulling them against the word of God and what God would have for them. But we can pray that God would protect them and save them and bring them out of that. You may not know their names, but God does. You may not know their issues, but God does. We don't just pray for the youth, but today, for whatever reason, the Lord, because of, because of Noah being here and voting on that and thinking about the future of our church, my own kids that are involved in it, I just felt compelled to call us as a church family to pray for them. To pray fervently, to pray lovingly. Not to pray that they would act like we would act, but that they would act like God has called them to act. Even Jesus is our model as an intercessor. Scripture says that he prayed for us, all those that would believe on the day, the night before he was crucified, and that describes him now as sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Are you willing to swim upstream. To look at the sin in your life and see how it's progressing and put an end to it. To ask God to give you the strength to do that. To realize that judgment is coming for your friends, for those around you, for those that may be coming. And that you want to be a part of seeing them saved. Would you be willing to say that we are going to be intentional and committed and covenant together. That we are going to stand firm for the things of Jesus. And we want our kids to do that. But we want to do that as we lead out in that. And are you willing to intercede, to pray for, to be about leading our church in prayer. I believe that God has some amazing things planned for our church and I believe that he wants us to take hold of it, grasp of it. I'm praying that we'll do that and I'm asking you to pray with me. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time and this opportunity that we have to be with you in your presence. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize those areas of our lives where we are beginning to compromise, that sin is beginning to progress, and, Lord, that we would stop it here and now. But we pray that you would give us just wisdom about those things. We pray as a church, Lord, that you will show us the things in our lives that maybe we have drifted away from you collectively as a church, and we need to refocus on you and your calling. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us the strength that we need to stand firm for you. Give us a heart that desires to intercede, to pray for our youth, others in our church, for friends and neighbors and family who have not yet accepted you as their Savior. And make us the instruments to reach them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.